Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management, that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This podcast is brought to you by L3 Harris. L3 Harris is an amazing company. They provide communications for first responders all over the world. They created the Beyond Push to Talk app that allows your team to communicate between mobile devices and radios through encrypted lines, which makes it so much easier for the team. Even better, they are offering the Beyond app at no cost to agencies for a limited time. You have to check it out. L3Harris.com slash responder support or click on the show notes for details. Hey, everybody. Before we start this episode, we just want to let you know that it's going to be in two parts. We had such a great time talking with Patrick McGinn and almost being two hours. So we split it up into two parts. Part one will be this episode. We talked about lessons learned, past experiences. He goes into really great detail about the disasters he's responded to, which will help you out in your own response. And then part two, he'll be talking about his current role with the Salvation Army, lessons learned, and how he's been a leader there. Really good information. Again, special episode with Patrick McGinn. Part one starts now. Welcome back, everybody. It's John Tuffy with the Disaster Tough podcast. We have Patrick McGinn on here. He's a really good friend of mine, actually one of my best friends, and so I'm really excited to have him on here Patrick and I served on the national team together, but before that, Patrick was part of the AmeriCorps. He has a degree in emergency management. In fact, he's getting his master's also in emergency management right now. So he's had lots of experience, and after he left the national team, he joined the Salvation Army as the Regional Disaster Services Director for Northern California and Nevada. Like I said, he has a ton of experience. We've been on so many disasters together. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Proud to be here. All right, so let's just jump right into it, because like I mentioned, you have so many disasters under your belt. You've been to disasters all over the country. You've been on OCONUS events. What disasters have stood out to you, you know, after going to so many different kinds of uh, disasters, and why do those events stand out to you? All right, yeah. Um, <clears throat> a couple that stand out to me are the uh, 2013 Moore, Oklahoma tornadoes uh, that at the time were, um, you know, the, the most destructive tornadoes uh, wiped out the whole town of Moore, Oklahoma for the second time in like 20 years. Um, that one stood out uh, not only because of those reasons, but also because it destroyed two schools. Um, and it exposed a lot of, uh, weaknesses, I guess, in the pl planning ahead of time. People didn't have shelters in their front yards. The schools didn't have shelters. This town had been wiped out by a tornado before, um, and they hadn't put any mitigation measures in place. So on the, it's fascinating. yeah, so while I was there, uh, my job was to be a disaster survivor assistant specialist. And to go to people's front doors or where the front doors were and help them work them through the financial process, the federal financial process that can be very complex and confusing um, and often frustrating if you don't have someone working with you through it. So my job was to go out and to ask people if they wanted that and then to kind of listen to them about their experience and the trauma of the disaster. Um, and people really just want to know that you care. Uh, they want to know that their government cares. And they want to know how to work through the process. And so a lot of the job was just listening. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that with even emotional and spiritual care that it, a lot of it's just listening um, and then providing some assistance or referrals to other organizations. So that one really stood out for the uh, just the drastic destruction of, of the tornadoes. Um, and then uh, another one that stands out is probably Hurricane Harvey, since that was a type one disaster that we both responded to and definitely pushed me to the edge um, of what I thought I could do, yeah. um, even as far as stress and working 15 to 17 hours a day. Um, but also the, uh, just the, the sheer severity of that disaster as well. Yeah. 
sat on the state for like four days. Right. It was just crazy. Those were pretty big moments, um, I think, in my own career that stood out. Um, And uh, yeah, so I'll just, I think I'll just, maybe I'll just stop there at those two. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, you probably could go on for a while. Uh, There's a, there's a couple of questions I had based off of what you just said. So, uh, or, or comments rather, the, the one in Oklahoma with, with a lack of mitigation and people, you know, being frustrated and maybe confused about, you know, as you're talking about the, the systems, how to uh, get their, um, their livelihoods back or at least their homes back, um, what to do in the future, that kind of stuff and listening. One disaster I was at, and I probably shouldn't say which state, but uh, they had like, they wanted to take over um, the sheltering, the long-term sheltering and um, putting people up and it just turned out to be a cluster because you still have the federal side now you have the state side and they had like seriously eight different logins that you need to have for just trying to get into um, your own trailer if you lost your home and so if you're an emergency manager i would say let the people who know their job do their job don't you know we we always try to like uh hold everything in we we try to be the guy or the girl who who knows all the information. And so like, that's just a good call out to say, whoever's the expert in that particular field, let them be the expert. To me, that's a goal across the board. That's a tenant. That's a, one of the 14 principles of ICS, Right. that interoperability. Uh, that's more so communications, but that integration that you're talking about, I think it's, a, it's all a team process, right? You talk about that one team, one fight mentality. Um, so right. we are all the people to do the job. Um, when the federal government comes in, it's not to take over, right? It's not command and control anymore. It's coordination and it's integration. Yeah, that cooperation piece is so huge. But there's something about our culture, maybe because we're all A-type personalities, but we all still want to own it. We all know cooperation, collaboration, that's like you know Rodney's go-to, right? But at the end of the day, we have to have a cultural shift in our field to say, okay, it's not just uh, one person doing this. Um, and so the other thing that you brought up with Harvey, I like how you brought up Harvey because on almost every single episode I've integrated Harvey into this season and I'm like, okay, I should not talk about Harvey on every, so I'm glad we went at least 37 seconds before talking about Harvey. It scarred us, John. I think it scarred us. It was intense. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, but it's good because it's good that you brought that up because we're talking about type one events and, I had I had responded to Ebola. You know, you you were on the national team, so you work with CDC. I was at NIH and you know NCI NIH, and so we were housing Ebola patients there. And so you and I were working on two different spectrums of the response at the time, and that felt like a type one. It was definitely not a type mm-hmm. one. As people gain experience in emergency management, they're going to think their tornado is a you know, dang, this thing feels like. This thing feels like the worst thing in the world. But at that local level, that is the worst thing in the world. Yeah, for sure. Um, at that local level, your world was just destroyed. Your neighborhood was just destroyed. Part of your city was. So um, it's no wonder, you know, that you feel that way. That's how we feel at the local level, at the regional level. The only the places where it doesn't start to feel that way is at mm. the federal level, where you're trained to respond to massive incidences. Um, but, yeah, you're right. When you go into a type of one event, you really do know what a type one event is. Hurricane Harvey stood out among the rest for sure. And working 15, 20 hours a day, every day for weeks, and you're just, it's relentless. It, it wasn't like kick back and have fun conversations. It was like, this is going to require every mental capacity I possibly have, coordinating with other people, lack of sleep, you know, working with other people in that lack of sleep environment which can create a lot of fun uh, jokes, but also it can just, it can take you to the max, right? John, one thing I want to mention there is uh, now that I've worked county government, federal government, and now nonprofit mm-hmm. emergency management. Um, <clears throat> and that's that the Salvation Army, uh, myself and my staff have gone and worked, you know, the Ridgecrest earthquake and the Kincaid fire. And uh, those were, you know, what you would consider type three uh, incidences, but we're working uh, tremendously hard while trying to still take care of ourselves and keep that strong mentality while going, um, which just goes to show that the 
people at the local level, you know, even on a type three incident, like I said, you got to remember that's their world. Yeah. So part of their world just got destroyed. You're right. If you're at the county level, if you're a nonprofit, you could, it might be considered a, a type three event for the federal government. But if you're working crazy, I mean, that's just how it is. Uh, the closer you so, are to the closer you are to the incident, the more intense it's going to be. So that that brings up a good question then, because Rodney would always push us to be type one emergency managers, right? He'd be like, "We're the, we're type one, we're a type one team, and you need to act as a type one team." And so, what is a type one? What's a type two? And what's a type three individual? Right. So for those people who are listening, uh, these types are categorizing disasters. You know, type three is. From a, from a federal perspective, not to, right. not to degrade the work that anyone's doing at any particular level, but at a federal perspective, your type three is something smaller, maybe your three county flood. Um, your type two may be, and these are just examples, your type two may be a, uh, a tornado that wipes out a town or a, um, it may be a, you know, it could be a volcanic eruption. Um, if it evacuates enough people, if enough people are uh, impacted. And there's lots of different criteria that go into those types. And then a type one is easy because a type one is an absolute like catastrophic disaster. It's your large earthquakes, your massive hurricanes, your, uh, you know, it could be your terrorist attacks. Um, those massive. Yeah. It completely throws <laughs> off every, everything we know about what's supposed to happen. Like if a hurricane decides to sit on a state for four days. You know, category four hurricane. Mm -hmm. You know, Hurricane Matthew, which we both responded to, we prepped for a type one, but it kind of stayed off. The eye actually stayed off the coast, and so it hit the coast, which was catastrophic for those communities. But it could have been much worse, right? It could have gone inland, right? So when we're talking type one, two, and three, that's what I'm referring to is this: those types of incidences, how many people are impacted, what the severity is, what the magnitude is, what the scope is. Um, and then from there, each, each one of those types takes a different type of, of thinking, a different level of thinking. Yes. So at the local level, you may just be focused on your jurisdiction, just your, just your county. Um, but the hurricane is actually affecting 36 counties. Uh, and it depends what level of government or what level of organization, uh, how big the jurisdiction is that the, your level of organization looks at. So if you're at the federal level and it's, you know, you're not really concerned with that one county, it's not your job. As FEMA, you're the lead uh, federal coordinating agency. Your job is to tell every organization what to do. Every federal organization what to do. Yes, thanks. Every federal organization what to do. At the state level, it's your job to coordinate what all the state organizations are supposed to do. Um and so I think that mental that those typing mentalities, it really is a mentality. So if you're at that local level, you're focused just on that local level. If you're at the federal level, you're focused more on big picture. Um, and that's kind of the training. That's a lot of the training that we underwent with the National Incident Management Assistance Team West, the National IMET West with FEMA. Um, and I think that tremendously helped me uh, in my own emergency management journey as well, I, I think it helped you too, John, just kind of look at For sure. look at things from a different perspective. Um, and it's interesting because I feel like that's what we're trying to do a lot of the time with other people in emergency management is try to get them to see their job, but in a different perspective, you know, in disaster times. Right. Um, but yeah, I really think that that's where it, it comes down to with the typing. It really depends what level you're at, um, but also more so the catastrophic is looking at it. Um, looking at the big picture, but you look at the big picture because when you have stuff like COVID, even the big one that no one saw coming, um, you have so many cascading effects, right? Like there's yeah. so many different things that happen as a result of that one disaster happening. It's like the domino, you know, the disaster was just the first domino. Humans, yeah. humans usually create the, all of the other dominoes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. COVID is definitely a man-made incident. You're talking about all these dominoes that have fallen because uh, we have either done things well or not done things very well. Wearing masks as a political thing is just mind boggling. It is so easy to put on this mask, you know, oh, two seconds later and I'm not a, 
you know, I'm not a, you know, big threat to everybody else, but that's become a thing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, just going back though, to that type one, type two, type three types of people, I don't really know how to identify a type two person, but I can definitely d- identify a type one and a type three, or at least that's what we would call it because we would go out to some of these disasters and we're talking about feds here and some people you and myself were really pushed by Rodney and to train our thought. And we focused a lot on that mentality piece of, you know, you train like you fight. And so we would push really, really hard and try to get things done quickly and accurately and with the utmost sense of prudence, um, knowing that time was our biggest problem. Time is always the biggest problem. But we would meet some other people who maybe didn't have as much experience or focused on that training, and they were so slow. They would complain about not having an hour lunch, only having a half an hour lunch, or you know things that didn't matter, right? I mean, you can really look at it in terms of uh, experience. Hmm. So if you have someone who they're filling a emergency support function liaison in an operation center of some kind, if you have someone who's going in there and has just been told, they've never been in disasters before, and they've just been told, you are the public health liaison now for, uh, for us in the state operations center. And they've never done it before. They don't know that level of stress, and they don't know what they're getting into. We're gonna, they have no idea what the job is. They have no idea yeah. what the job is or who they report to. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe that's it. I think a lot of different things just go into it. Um, but I think you know when you, when you meet other emergency managers who have responded to incidences or many incidences, and they start to understand what you need to mentally and physically and training wise, what you need to respond to an event so that you know what to expect so that you can be prepared to respond in the adequate way, not only to do your job and take care of other people, but also to take care of yourself. It's a major part of the profession. Well, I think you and I both learned that in Hurricane Harvey specifically, taking care of yourself. You're, you know, you went, you were talking about pushing yourself to the max. I definitely pushed myself to the max. I had no idea what my max was. Uh, and then Hurricane Harvey happened and six weeks in and there was just so much stress. I, I, you know, my body was just breaking down and I'm like, oh, okay, this is what it is. And I had that moment of just extreme release, you know, just all that frustration, just screaming in my car you know, punching the steering wheel kind of moment, just quietly, you know, quietly. It's a funny word with um, screaming, but I was just by myself and I got that moment out there, you know, uh, maybe even tears, but like my body was just so full of stress and uh, understanding what that is like. Well, that's, that's a, that's a cathartic moment, right? That's like a release. Absolutely. You're going through a catharsis. Um, when I do my trainings for Salvation Army and I'm doing my intro to disaster services with brand new volunteers, um, I tell them about that moment for me. Hey, I found my breaking point. It was after working, you know, 10, only 10 days for, you know, 17 to 18 hours a day. And I was totally exhausted. And, you know, this is how it happened. And my goal for them was to tell them, Hey, I don't ever want this to happen to you. So, you know, starting, starting when I got hired, we're going to do split schedules, shift schedules. Nobody's working more than eight to 10 hours a day. Um, and that's just how we're going to do it. I don't want to see anyone get to that point because that's called burnout. And it's very common in emergency management yeah. to experience burnout because we just want to go, go, go. We get the superhero syndrome that we're the only ones that can do the job. And if we take a break, the job's not going to get done. I felt that way so many times. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you just, you just called out my entire life. <laughs> so so many times but i am a superhero <laughs> so uh so we, we get this mentality and it's hard not to do when you're actually doing your job well using the fruits of your labor people are getting help or people are getting the information they need to make decisions um and you start to see it and you're like wow you know this this feels good i'm in the zone but a couple days later you start to realize oh i haven't been eating well or I haven't been eating at all. Uh, I haven't been exercising. I haven't been getting the sleep I need. And before you know it, you're burnt out, but you're still expected to keep coming in and doing your job. Yeah. So I think that's a major component that people listening should understand about emergency management is that uh, a large part of it is self-regulation. You got to take care of yourself so that you can take care of other people. There's a massive personal responsibility 
that you that you need to take on yourself to say I'm going to continue to live a healthy lifestyle even when uh, even when I'm not in my normal routine and disaster does that to you but that's why we kind of train we talk about that professionally but I think personally is just as important um, because if you go into it you're not used to it and you get out of your routine it throws everything else off you kind of become a subject to the uh, to the disaster you become a slave to the disaster basically yeah um, you're no longer in control so it does take a concerted effort but uh, it's doable well that's why staffing is so incredibly important how many disasters have you been to or where I've been into where Rodney or us were talking that we just need more staff and you know following those operational periods we had operational periods uh, at a lot of disasters but I don't really follow them because I would have to work, you know, that, that normal 12 hours. And then there was not another uh, qualified person to do my job at night. And I was, I'd be getting requests from the, the night staff. And it was important for them uh, to get that information. And I feel like there's a lot of emergency managers out there, probably mostly at the county level, to be honest, who are just like, there's nobody else. I'm the only person to do that. And so just to hear from other emergency managers like yourself, who's someone who's so experienced to say, hey, you do need sleep because you make better decisions, right? Like you need to be able to help the most amount of people. That's the job. The job is to help the most amount of people with the, with the time that's allotted to you. And so to be able to do that, sleep, eat well, exercise, you know, that 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes even to get out there and just release some stress that will help you become a much more effective emergency manager because you'll be able to focus better. There got to this point um, in Harvey where I was almost delirious. I would make the most ridiculous comments. I had no filter whatsoever. And, you know, my, my number two, uh, James, he was like, dude, you need some sleep. Like it's time. Yeah, it's like, I can you were do the quoting, job. You were quoting that show Archer like nonstop. You must have been oh really gosh. watching that first every hour. All, you weren't at work. First of all, Archer is the, is the best show. They're not a sponsor. They should be a sponsor, and they should make me a character <laughs> superhero, John, uh, on the show. Whatever. So yeah, that that's true though. Like that's I got to the point where I had a staff that came in there and said, "Hey, you can now take a break," and so. Uh, it, it sounds like you've really developed a lot of uh, your own axioms. Rodney was on here before talking about his axioms. And um, you, you found some truths, right? Self-evidence truths. So that's what axioms are. Has anything stood out to you in your career where you're like, I, I want other people to know this because I found it to be true for myself? Training. Yeah. Uh, Training is one. Oh. Uh, taking care of yourself is another one, obviously, but... Oh, of course. Uh, one thing that I want to mention just before that, and this might be an axiom also. I mean, it's not really an axiom. It is a universal thing that needs to happen for everyone, and that's managing ex managing expectations. Um, part of that, that that requesting staff that we talk about when we go to large incidences, that's just for our planning section. And in planning, we we create a list of products that promote situation awareness to various uh sections, whether it's the operations section, logistics section, finance, uh, and then whatever uh, subsections within those sections um, in the joint field office at the federal level. And part of that managing expectations is I've been in disasters where I've seen my boss at the time, Rodney, the section, planning section chief, go to our federal coordinating officer and say, hey, uh, here are the products you want done, right? You want 12 different products done. Well, I have three staff. Right. Okay. Here's the amount of products three staff can get done. And it's eight. This eight these eight products. So if you want this this these 12 products, I'm gonna need more staff. Otherwise, that's what you get. And it's just a frank conversation from one professional to another, but someone has to stand up and say, someone has to stand up and say their expectations. Does it take confidence? Yes, it does take confidence. Does it take, uh, you know, you have to have that confidence to be able to speak. You have to have a lot of guts in some cases. And some people would feel shy about that. But if you don't do that, it will, it will dramatically 
uh, it could dramatically impact your career because they'll have an expectation. And if you don't voice what, what you can actually do, then you'll just, you may look incompetent, but really what really happens is it's just beyond the bandwidth of a, of a normal expectations. And incident commanders don't always come from a planning perspective, right? They can come from an operations perspective. And so just understanding what I can do as a product uh, or, you know, how many products I can do or what kind of situation awareness that you want, what kind of level, that's a great call out. Okay, so the axiom is manage expectations. That is the, one of the axioms. Uh, and I have to do that at the Salvation Army level across the state of California. I, one of my colleagues, Nick, he's the director for Southern California, but for Northern Central California and Northern Nevada, managing expectations, going to VOAD meetings and telling people, here's what we actually do and here's what we can do. Um, having those conversations with the state with the California Department of Social Services, with California Office of Emergency Services. Here's what we can do, the California VOADs. Um, and uh, that way they don't just have a assumption. They actually have the knowledge of, oh, here's what we can request them to do. Here's how we can partner with them to do things. Um, it really empowers other organizations to reach out to us if they know more about us. And I feel the same way about them. Um, another axiom is, uh, well, I just, you know, favorite saying of mine, teamwork makes the dream work. Uh, that's 100% true in disaster. Well, one of Rodney's, you know, is, uh, uh, you know, process is more important than product. Okay. So process is more important than product. So process is planning. Okay. At least we're, we're, we're coming out of all this kind of from a planning right, perspective. I'm in more of an operational role now or kind of a holistic emergency management role now, but, um, uh, process is planning. Planning is teamwork, and teamwork makes the four C's of the VOAD, which is communication, cooperation, collaboration, and coordination, make those come alive. Um, you know, there's there, this this saying has been said many, many times in many different ways. But I recently heard it on a TED talk yesterday in a different way that uh, gardening is more important than the garden. Mm. You know, or you've heard uh, it's the journey is more important than the destination. Right. Or the planning is more important than the plan because it brings people together and it helps people understand all along the way what the plan says. Nobody really, I mean, very few times are people going to pull the plan off the shelf at the federal level. It's a 500 page plan or a doorstop, open it up and say, oh, page 236, here's our role. They may do that and... But the, in, in some cases, the reason for those that have created the plan, uh, the reason they don't have to look at it is because they've been involved in the planning step, the planning process all the way along. Right. The problem that we see in emergency management a lot is that people go into their silo, write a plan, not share it with any of the other departments, and then say, hey, look, we got a plan. Well, that's a, that's a, poor, that's a poorly written plan. All emergency managers who, who write plans... I'm going to, I'm pretty passionate about this because I'm a private guy and I want to write your plans. So, but, but that's true. Like if we go in there and we write somebody's plan, it would be incredibly stupid and it does happen a lot. It happens way too much. You and I have seen this. Oh my gosh. So many times somebody writes a plan, nobody's seen it. And then we get out to disaster and like, what about the plan? You're like, you didn't even include us in that process. How are we supposed to know what your plan is? You know, I, at the county level, I've seen that. I've seen that at a federal agency level, just for that specific agency. Somebody wrote this, you know, quote unquote, beautiful plan. And we had an incident and they're referencing it. And everybody in the room was like, what are you talking about? Because we mm -hmm. weren't even included in that process. And we should have been included in that process. That's a really good call out that if you're a planner, include everybody in that plan. And that could be somebody outside of your jurisdiction, right? If you're at a county level and you're trying to make evacuation routes, you should be including the city planners. You should be including, uh, you know, education as a big one because of, you know, schools and bus routes and everything else. You don't know bus routes, right? Like mm -hmm. you need to include other people. And so it depends on your level of coordinating agency, state, county, whatever, but include those people that are in part of the whole community approach. Right. It's, it's, it's a lot more work. Yes. But is your plan going to actually be effective and actually do the things it says it's going to do because you include those people along the way? Yeah. A lot more so than the ones that are just, 
made by one or two people that nobody else has had exposure to it and nobody else really knows what to do. Yeah. Um, the plan is just literature at that point. It's, it's maybe it's for research at that point instead of being actually operational, something someone can pick up. Um, and that's maybe that's another axiom is write short, concise plans, plans that are, you know, massive in size, a hundred, 200 pages. Um, not worth it. You want something that someone can pull off the shelf. It's going to be about this thick. Maybe, uh, they can, it's in, you know, there's little binders that are about, about this two thick. inches you don't, thick. That's what he's showing. Yeah. yeah, like an inch, is that right? I don't know. Yeah. It's not the really big ones, okay? It's the small ones. You can pull them off the shelf. You can look through it. It's operational. Everything is relevant to what you're doing right now. Allow, so because every disaster is different, allow there to be wiggle room. You want to hit all the major points, but if you're falling so closely to a plan that you're actually not addressing the specific disaster, now you have a problem, right? You might not have a problem with evacuation routes, or you might have a problem with evacuation routes. So... There, there's a couple of different things you have to deal with there. Um, you, you've done a lot of training. I remember that you and I, uh, it, going back to Har Harvey, man, this, this is a Harvey episode. Um, so about two and a half months before Harvey, uh, tell us about that training we did with uh, Philadelphia. Not with Philadelphia, but just an internal exercise. And then what was the outcome of that? Yeah, we did it uh, kind of a simulated exercise. You know, the scenario was that we were in Pennsylvania. Um, there was a, it was a flooding event. It wasn't just me, but it was a couple other people in the planning for this scenario. Um, and, you know, there's a flooding event. There's uh, all sorts of critical infrastructure that's getting flooded. There's zoos that are getting flooded. You know, people wanted to throw in things that, uh, we don't usually see in emergency management training exercises. Um, right. Wanted to throw in some some wrenches to see how people would react type thing. And we're a national response team. So uh, anytime we can train kind of a different scenario, uh, that's great. It's not like we're a pro at every scenario. And these are exercises. They're really meant to help you think in a different way. That's all. That's That's not all they are. But that's one of the main focuses is how can we get people thinking in a different way than they think now, considering different options that they weren't previously considering. Um, yeah, it, it was just a, it's at the time, it seemed like a normal, cool exercise where we were thinking, OK, how do we evacuate? I, I specifically remember the zoo. OK, we have all these animals. It's a it's a major uh, component of the city for, you know, recreation and whatever. And it was going to be inundated. You know, all those animals would have died. And because it was such a big thing for the city, we wanted to, you know, that was the um, planning constraint, how to evacuate all those animals and then the adjacent facilities around there. It was a fun exercise, but it, it didn't seem, it seemed very well organized because it was a great planning. But at the time, you don't think like, oh, this could happen, right? So what happened in Harvey? Uh, right. So, uh, so <laughs> we do all this planning, all this training. Um, and then during Hurricane Harvey, just in the first initial days when we're getting, you know, projected 52 inches of rain in the next, you know, 48 hours or something like that, something crazy. We look at the uh, river gauges and then to look at based on those river gauges, if they've been, if it's overflowed before, if it's flooded before, got into a major flood stage what happened to the community in that area. And it tells you uh, with National Weather Service or with NOAA what happened um, in previous times when the flood level, major flood level had gotten to two feet above, five feet above, 36 feet above. Um, and we happened to use uh, a program to look at where critical infrastructure was. And you kind of overlay that and you compare that to the river gauges, you compare that to um, the uh, quantitative precipitation reports um, and you kind of see, okay, based on all this data, uh, what's going to happen to this area? And so we determined from that downriver, a, there was a client downriver that was like right on the river and they were making, they were manufacturing uh, something. I saw this and I was like, oh my gosh, okay, this could be an actual thing that could happen. Right. So we got these projections based on those river gauges. Okay, this area is definitely going to overflow. So it was something to look into because, you know, if some chemical gets into a river, 
or an area, um, that's going to cause a lot of damage to the environment and maybe to people as well. I remember talking to Mike Paddock, uh, who I'd love to have come on this show, by the way. Our uh, National Weather Service liaison. liaison. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, first of all, some of uh, his predictions are usually like right on point. I mean, the guy is phenomenal at what he does. Uh, the he looked at that and he goes, yeah, that's definitely going to happen. He was looking at the river gauges as well. And so we said, okay, let, let's, let's elevate this and let's do something about it. And we ended up evacuating a lot of people. Um, it did flood and uh, nobody was really hurt because they, they took care of it in that, in that situation. And that was because of training and experience that you had in the summer previous to that. Right. And so, uh, as a person who's developed so much training, switching gears here a little bit, what are some things that you call out when you're like, okay, this is what I want to make sure that my training is because you, you threw in wrenches, but those wrenches still seemed pretty logical, right? A zoo's going to get flooded. That happens, right? How do you develop trainings where, um, they can still be effective, even though it's a, a constraint maybe that they haven't dealt with before? Well, so we're looking at exercises here when we're talking about training. It could be talking about trainings. It could be classroom trainings. It could be just PowerPoint trainings, whatever they're going to be. But I think exercises, exercises always, yeah, tabletops, exercises always have to, uh, always have to train whatever you've taught them in that training or whatever you taught them in that plan. Um, and I think there's a couple things you have to do. You have to identify what your agency or your organization's primary role is. You know, if you're in, county, state, federal government, you're, a big focus of yours is probably going to be on infrastructure and environment. Um, it's going to be on infrastructure and it's going to be on possibly moving people, you know, evacuations. Mm. Uh, if you're at a nonprofit level, if you're at a voluntary organizations active in disaster level, VOAD level, if you're at a non-governmental organization level, you're, you may be looking at um, cleanup or you may be looking at human-centric services like mass care, like feeding, like sheltering, uh, like providing, you know, wraparound services, whatever it may be. <clears throat> so uh, in those cases, you have to determine what your agency's primary role is. What are you trying to exercise? And do you want to exercise that role? Or are you just trying to get people to think in a different way? Now, one thing is you want to make sure to do is to not get caught up in making the uh, scenario stressful, you know, by saying this much land has been destroyed or this much, you know, it's heading for these houses and don't worry about the numbers. Okay. People who don't encounter this all the time are going to be stressed out by the situation of a disaster. Right. They're just automatically going to be stressed out. Um, if you're training a group of people, keep that in mind that the, maybe the goal of the exercise is for people to work together. Because everyone has something different to offer, either from different departments or different positions. Those positions, they do, they know exactly what they do. But when they're combined with another position, well, now you've got some collaboration. You've got some uh, cooperation, communication, and you're going to produce something different than you normally would have otherwise. So you come up with these different courses of action. I think that's just a good place to go with any uh, exercise is to present a scenario and then have whoever's in that scenario come up with courses of action as potential solutions to that scenario. And then from there to analyze those courses of action, you know, mm -hmm. those, here's what we're going to recommend, you know, based on that uh, chemical plant scenario, you know, from there, that information could have gone up to the FCO. He could have, the federal coordinating officer, he could have gotten the operations chief together and the logistics chief together. Some other uh, chemical experts had said, or, or national guard or whoever and said, Hey, what can we do here? They may have said, hey, we can go and we can uh, contact the plant. If we can't get a hold of anybody, you know, another course of action is we can just evacuate people. Another course of action is we can sandbag the area so it doesn't get flooded. Another, so you have all these courses of action. Yeah. And how do you decide the best one? Maybe it's not your responsibility to choose the best one, but maybe it's your job to uh, develop the best course of action you can with the information that you have at the time. So I think it's always good to determine your primary role um, of your organization, one of your primary roles, or, or all of them, whichever one you want to exercise, then you want to determine, um, you know, who's involved, and you want to determine your outcomes. If you can make your 
trainings and your exercises outcome-based, uh, that's best. I said before, you know, it's more process is more important than product. Absolutely. But you always want to have the product in mind. Um, right. It's not, you know, it's process is driving everything. But product, you're going to come up with something. Um, I just watched the Ford versus Ferrari movie on the airplane out here. Oh, it's a good movie. Did you see yeah. it? Okay, yeah, it was awesome. Love that movie. Well, in that movie... Uh, you know, they're trying to save the, the Ford brand and uh, they want to race, they want to make it cool again. So they race it in this Le Mans, which is this yeah. 24 hour race. Um, and, you know, Ford, uh, oh gosh, now I'm thinking I don't want to give any spoilers away. You're about but, to give all the spoilers away. <laughs> I know. So I'm not, I, I decided <laughs> now in this moment <laughs> that I'm not going to. Um, but they seek to do something. They, they, you know, the end product isn't what they thought it was going to be, but the process of picking a driver, having a coach, uh, building the engine, making a brand new process, uh, product in the, in the process of making that product, they brought a team together and they were successful. Right. And, uh, what happens from there? I'll let you guys watch the movie. Tremendous movie. Oh my gosh. That movie was amazing. And I also stopped using that word tremendous. I've used that like three times. Tremendous. Now. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but also, so, uh, yeah, so they, that, that's a big thing. Do you want people to work together? I mean, what are the outcomes? Always have to be outcome focused. What is going to yeah. be, what's the outcomes going... within your process? Your process has to consider the outcomes. Yeah. You have to consider the outcomes and specifically when you're doing training, you want to be able to tell your leadership, here are the three things that we want to get out of this. Just like any yeah. meeting that you have never going into a meeting without an agenda. You know, you're going to have chaos. Always go into yeah. a meeting with an agenda. That's your organization. Tell people what, what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, who's going to do it, and what you're going to get out of it. And always leave a meeting with actionables. Leave a meeting, leave a training, I leave hate... an exercise yes. with actionables. You've got to have something yes. that, that you're going to do after this and you're going to follow up on. Always do that. Never, never do anything again ever in your life in everything without actionables. That is like the number. So I, I'm on the private side now and every single meeting I say, like, so what, right? Like, why are we having this meeting? What's, what, do you, what are we going to do now? If I can't figure that out in the first five minutes of a meeting, I try to end it. Like, honestly, because it's like, if, if we're just talking, like, so the axiom of Rodney, my axiom is just slightly different. Uh, process is more important than product is what Rodney says. And I, there's a lot of truth in that. I change it slightly for myself. I say process is just as important as product. If you don't have a product at the end of the day, if you don't have outcomes, if you don't have actual things that you're actually doing, then that process becomes void, right? You need, you have to have the process is just as important as product. And my second one is that I follow is always have the right people in the room. Um, a great emergency managers, highly experienced emergency managers come off with this wealth of knowledge. I mean, you were just talking for the last 20, 25 minutes with me and you've hit on so many different points. It's like, man, this guy knows so much, right? This guy knows so much. And I feel like when I talk to less experienced emergency managers, they're like, how in the world do you, do you know about this or that, you know? And what I always respond with is, I don't try to assume I'm the expert. I always try to bring the experts in the room. And so after having so many different conversations with them, I feel like I have a, a fun, fundamental understanding of what they're talking about. I still allow them to be the experts, but I've now gained all this knowledge by collaboration. Well, John, this... that, that reminds me of one of my axioms. Mm. Uh, and that is, and I just say this all the time in the Salvation Army, because this is what happens kind of at the local level. Remind people that we are not the answer. We are part of the solution. Mm. I, I say I like that, that so much. Every every disaster, every event, while we're planning, we're not the answer. We may be getting a ton of donations. We are we want to integrate. We want to be part, we are part of the community. We're in every community um, already, permanent offices, but we're not the answer. We're part of the solution. We're team players. Right. You can do your one piece as part of the solution. I like that. Now you brought up chaos. I'm going to quote you for a second because it's a really good line. You said disasters don't have to be chaotic. They become chaotic when you're not organized and you're not communicating. Now, I think that's just phenomenal because uh, 
it does feel like chaos a lot. And I think it does really come down to organization and communication. But there's probably a lot of our emergency managers on here who've been like, okay, I've been to 15 disasters, right? Like my county always floods. We've had tornadoes. And every single time it feels like a chaos. I'm trying to coordinate with people. There's always confusion. You hear this thing from Fugate, every disaster is different, which I kind of agree with. I kind of don't agree with because if you're, you know, great, you should, there's some, some things that align up every time. So what did you mean by that? And how do we overcome that? Is it a lack of training thing? Is it an experience thing? Is it just a culture thing? How do we get out of chaos? Right. So chaos, chaos and panic promote urgency, right? They, they create, sorry, they create urgency. Things right. have to get done right now. They cannot wait. We got to get out the door. We got to open the shelter. We got to get this food ready. We got to, we got to deploy. Um, that panic, right? And so we always, we say, I took a note yesterday on the airplane that just said, stay calm. Well, you know what? It's impossible to stay calm. <laughs> it is impossible to stay calm, whether you're being affected by the disaster or whether you're getting ready to activate and deploy. Um, it is impossible to stay absolutely calm. If you're getting ready to deploy, you might be excited. You, know, you might be ready to go. You might already be working on some things, collecting situation awareness, working with your counterpart at the ground. If you're a survivor, absolutely, you're in that kind of panic mode. Um, you, you're, you're trying to get out the door. There's an urgency. Well, that urgency is, is created also by maybe people in danger. There's an immediate danger. Um, right. by, and then after the danger, there's a, an, an immediate need. Um, and so you have, you have this concept where you have people that are, uh, and this kind of, kind of, it goes back to like, what is the role of your organization? So in government, usually the role is, you know, it's going to be infrastructure. It's going to be search and rescue. It's going to be immediate need, not immediate need, urgent danger. We want to get people out of danger. People are in danger right now. We're going to rescue them. And they're going to go to a shelter. And that's where kind of like, you know, maybe a county government may take that, that shelter over. But it, it's likely going to be Red Cross. It could be a church. It could be some other organization. And those types of organizations are going to provide that mass care for those people. Um, so, so there's that, that urgency. Is, uh, when people feel that urgency, that panic, that chaos, is that a lack of training? Is that a cultural thing? I think in emergency management, we just have this. Um, it's part of the profession. It's kind of part of the person, the person that you are. And it's right. maybe part of the reason of what drew you to emergency management in the first place. Uh, but there are a lot of people that find their zone in that chaos. Uh, you, you just get in the zone. Um, you're doing what you want to do, what you feel like you're meant to do. Um, and you're doing it right now. And so there's, uh, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have to be chaotic. Um, that that idea that you know we have we employ ICS at the federal level, at the state level, at, you know at the county level, um, as instituted as part of NIMS after uh, National Incident Management System after after nine eleven, um, at all those different levels, um, we do that because we. We needed it. We needed a way to, for everyone to communicate together, for everyone to integrate together, for it to happen more seamlessly and to at least have a, a backbone, to have something to refer to at all times to say, hey, this is what we're supposed to do um, and we know that it works. Uh, when you have that organization, when people know who to call, we got a contact list. It's kind of like in the Salvation Army, what I do basically from, I take a lot of our federal best practices, a lot of our federal lessons learned, and I just transposed it uh, to Salvation Army, which has helped tremendously. Oh gosh, that's awesome. Which 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 is just like a, a huge huge help, basically huge. organizing. Yeah, uh, you, yeah, <laughs> huge, <laughs> a massive a massive help in uh, in in responding because uh, now we know who to contact. We know where our resources are. They're all labeled. There's a staging area. There's pre-positioned. Uh, we put people out in the field when we where we think the incident's going to happen. We've done contingency planning. So if the fire goes this way, we're doing this. If the fire goes this way, we're doing this. If the fire goes this way, we're doing this. Um, and you you have to have that. And if you commit to taking that IEP, basically that incident action plan, 
and you just break down the components because at the nonprofit level, you may or may not be doing an IAP. It may not make sense. You may be too operational, um, but you have some version of a crisis action plan right. that's guiding your operation. So you take it. You you have basically your your you may have a map. You definitely have a 205A. That's your contact list. Um, you got an org chart. You've got your um, uh, you may have a medical list, uh, and you you may have also you definitely have your meeting schedule. So that <clears throat> I love one of Rodney's lines, you know, don't put things together or don't write things that people can understand, write things that people can't misunderstand. So make plans that have components that people can't misunderstand. So they go to a contact list and they know who's in which position and they know that's in the org chart and they know who to call for what their problems are. So you just kind of in emergency management, there's not a lot of, I mean, there's original ideas when you're collaborating and you're coming up with unique solutions to unique problems that disasters create. But for the most part, everyone's stealing from everybody else. And that's a good thing. You're taking exercises from other people. You don't need to reinvent the wheel if you don't want to. You can, and right. it's fun, but in an exercise or uh, uh, training scenario, but you don't have to. You can take templates. That's what they're for. That's what preparedness is for. Somebody else prepared with a planning template, with an exercise template, with something already made so that you can take it and you can use it at a, at a quicker rate in your organization. Yeah. I want to ask you about, uh, I want to ask you about Salvation Army, but I'm going to hold off on that one sec because I would, I'd be really sad if we missed this part. So you talked about dealing with a hazmat incident and how you trained for that and how you responded to that. You talked a lot about hurricanes. We've talked a lot about Hurricane Harvey specifically on this episode. And you started to touch on wildfires. So I'm just going to ask you maybe two, three events that we haven't hit on yet. Just really, really quick, maybe a sentence or two. If you're planning for these uh, disasters and you're trying to go out there and plan, uh, tell us about constraints of dealing with a wildfire, specifically in California, because now that you're in California, you're dealing with that at the local level. You've been in there at the Fed level. From a federal planning perspective, what are some things you have to know? Or, you know, at least from your perspective, what, do you, what are some things? Yeah, kind of from any planning perspective. So... We have our all hazards plans that are going to be, you know, those are important because we have our procedures that are probably the same for every disaster, which is a good thing. The thing right. that will make the plan different based off of the disaster is the resources that are involved. Mm. Um, you really got to tailor your response. Um, something that uh, I guess I kind of got to segue here for a second because I just thought of a really good point, And that is that um, during a fire uh, during, you may think, oh, I don't know where this fire is going to go. We're just going to wait and see. Okay. There's lots of things you can do to tell where the fire is going to go. All right. You can look at your, your, your state fire page for us. It's Cal fire. So I look at where the incident is at, where the fire perimeter is. Then I go to windy.com and I look at where the wind is going, where it is, you know, how fast is it blowing and where, which direction is it going? And if it's going towards a town, well, then I'm coming up with three different scenarios. One, if it hits the town, one, if it goes around it, um, you know, maybe another, if, if, if we're just feeding, you know, firefighters, if we're going to be feeding survivors, what's going to happen there. 